Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have with me another very special guest, an author, and a very interesting character, Vic Ferrari. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, well, Guy, thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, I hope all is well in Israel. Uh, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired NYPD detective um, turned author. I'm promoting my latest book, NYPD Law and Disorder. Um, I'm a Bronx kid. I grew up in New York City, lower middle class family. I always wanted to be a police officer in America. I grew up watching the French Connection and Dirty Harry movies, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, my parents didn't want me to become a police officer necessarily. They tried pushing me towards college, but I knew what I wanted to do. And by 21 years old, I took the police exam. I became a New York City police officer. I was working in the burned out South Bronx with abandoned buildings and wild packs of greasy dogs. And early on, I knew that as much as I liked working in a police station, I, I could see the cops there were miserable. You had a lot of guys from the Vietnam era that had come back home and went into police service. and. A lot of them weren't very happy people. It was kind of a miserable existence working in, in a burnt out South Bronx precinct. So I knew there was more to doing things to be uh, being a New York City police officer. So I bounced around. I worked in various units. Uh, I worked in a plainclothes unit where we targeted pickpockets and robberies in progress. I worked in the narcotics division where I purchased drugs and did buy and bust operations in, in northern Manhattan. And uh, my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So I worked on everything from chop shops, stolen vehicles, stolen vehicles being exported out of the country, vehicle identification numbers being taken off of stolen cars and masks, mafia, um, worked on some homicides. And uh, when it was over, after 20 years, I retired. I got bored and I started writing these books, which chronicles the funnier things and a behind the scene look at the New York City Police Department that most people wouldn't know about. Yeah, so why did you want to become a, a police officer in the first place? I was a little boy. Um, my grandfather had gone out to get the newspaper during a snowstorm and broken his leg. And uh, the police came to the door. And it was these two big cops in their blue uniforms. And they were holding my, one of them had my grandfather in his arms. They had brought him back to the house. And I was just, you know, as a, as a child, the first thing you look at is that uniform and then the gun, you're staring at it. And you're like, who are these guys? Like, where'd they come from? How did they find my grandfather? What do they eat? You know what I mean? Like, I was amazed. I was in awe. And then as a little boy, there was a movie theater around the corner from the local police station. So... Every time my mother took us to the movie theater, I would run away from her, run up to the police cars and put, look in to see what kind of equipment they had. What were they eating? What were these guys about? I, you know, I studied them. I studied the way they held their nightsticks, the way they rested their hand on the butt of their gun when they were relaxed and talking to coworkers. I was like, there's like this whole secret society out there that I really want to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, that's a great perspective and a great way to look at it. Like a, a secret society, maybe it has some, some weight to it, I think, to that kind of a perspective. But we also have to have a, some kind of order, you know, in the world that is becoming more and more chaotic. So did you, were you influenced by all those different 
they cop shows and detective and film noirs. If you saw some of those. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and what's funny is, so as a naive 21 year old kid, you go into the police academy and the first thing they tell you is everything you saw on TV is, is, is not real. And there's consequences for your actions. You're not going to go around shooting people. You're not going to go around beating people up. You're not going to go around, you know, administering street justice, you know? So you realized early on, you know, that there's consequences for your actions and the job is more about helping people. Obviously we targeted crime, but a lot of it is, is, is service. Like the way those two cops brought my grandfather home or you don't got to give everybody you pull over a ticket, which I was never a big fan of. Um, it was different from what I had envisioned it to be as a young child that once I got in the police academy, but here's what's funny. So after you do six months in the police academy, they ship you up to field training, and then a precinct. And then when you go into precinct, the first thing they tell you is every all that shit they told you in the police academy, that's all nonsense. This is the way it's done. So then the philosophy changes from cookies and milk to, you know, uh, you know, you're going to be working very long hours. You know, there's going to be a lot of people out here that despise you. You really have to watch your back. Um, you know, be careful who you talk to. Um, it, 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 so I got like a second education the second I walked into a police station. Yeah, that's great. So if when you start as a police officer, what is a, do you do what kind of a attitude do you take as a police officer? Do you have, do you have a lackadaisical attitude or do you have a strict uh, orderly kind of a vibe to your work? Well, you know, there's no, as much as they say there's a handbook for police work, there's not. It, it's baptism by fire. Um, the first thing is when you enter an NY, now things might have changed, but I, I'm going back to when I was hired. So when you go to an NYPD precinct as a rookie or even the new guy, if you transfer, no one's really going to talk to you. It's almost like you're an alien from outer space. They might come up and look at you and just kind of poke you and just see, you know, what's this guy about? A lot is about trust. No one really talks to you. So the rookies tend to band together and you're, you're hoping you get put in a radio call with a veteran because you want to learn, but the veterans want no part of you. It's almost like when you see like on the Discovery Channel, like the lions, like the, the, like the male lion wants nothing to do with the cubs. They're just kind of like, yeah, all right. Like you got to learn a lot of things on your own. And after a while, what will happen is the veterans, once after a while, they see you're all right. You're not a big mouth. You're not a know-it-all. You're not a moron. They'll start letting you in a little bit more. They'll start showing you things. There's, there's guys that'll never talk to you, and you know they're miserable. But um, after a while, they bring you along. But it's um, it, it's not like you know, oh, here, like in the movies, like oh, here's your desk and uh, here's your parking space. It, it, it's none of that. I mean, you had. Um, three, four rookies changing out of one locker because the veterans won't give up a locker. It, it's, um, it's definitely a pecking order in an NYPD police station that a lot of people don't know about. But after a while, it, it takes a while, but after a while you find your way. Yeah, so can you take me through uh, some of the stories or some of the things that are really, really crazy that happened during your time in the police, something that it sticks with you that is similar to an action feature film, shall we say? Okay, I'll tell you a story that happened to my partner. So early on in my career, we all used to go to these cop bars and meet girls and have a couple of drinks. We we're in our early 20s. 
So my old partner worked with a guy that was an amateur magician. He used to do kids parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we go to the bar and we're talking to girls and he'd come over and he's pulling, he's pulling flowers out of his sleeve. He's pulling gold coins behind the girls. And he's basically cock blocking us with magic. <laughs> so I used to turn, turn to my old partner and go, what's up with this guy? I said, well, I mean, you know, he's a real pain in the ass. Tell him to knock it off. And he goes, you know something, Vic? He goes, if this guy took police work as serious as he did his magic show, he goes, he'd be the greatest cop in the world. So anyway, a couple of months later, my old partner and the magician get called to the basement of this building and it comes over as calls for help. So back then they didn't have the 911 system that could pinpoint to a particular phone or an apartment. It just said calls for help the basement. They go into the basement of the six story building and there's two doors. They go to the first door and they start banging on it. No one answers. My partner goes to bang on the second door and the magician tells him, don't knock on that door. We made so much noise down here. Our radios are on. You hit the first door with a nightstick. No, no one's there. Let's go. Come on. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. My partner goes to knock again. He goes, come on, just come on. Let's just go. So they leave. What they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the, of the building lived there. He was selling cocaine out of the apartment. And he was buying the cocaine on consignment from these Yugoslavian guys and then selling it. Well, he became addicted to coke. He stopped paying them. So in the drug world, they don't you know, do repossessions or friendly notices or reminders like they're going to cancel your cable. What they did was it's an old gypsy trick. The two Yugo Yugoslavian guys got an attractive female. They knocked on the apartment door. The cokehead super looks through, sees this beautiful woman, opens the door. They rush in. They start pistol whipping him and beating him up. So, you know, where's the money? Where's the money? He doesn't have the answer. So they shoot the super in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out to the uh, furnace and they throw him in the furnace. And now he's burning up like a Puerto Rican fire log. They go back into the apartment. They're ransacking the apartment for money or coke or whatever they can get their hands on. When my old partner and the magician are standing outside. Now they've got a dilemma. They just killed a guy. They're in the apartment. The police are outside. So they tell the girl who's with them, listen, if these cops knock on the door, let them in. Walk them through the apartment. When you pass this threshold, jump on the floor. We'll come out. We'll shoot them in the head and we'll throw them in the incinerator and we'll get out of here. Well, luckily for my partner and the magician, they didn't knock on that door. They go outside and there's a car parked on a fire hydrant, which is the getaway car. They write it a ticket. So a couple of weeks later, when the super goes missing, Detectives figure out that there was a call to that apartment a couple of days before. They find the ticket. The ticket leads them to the female. The female gives up the whole thing, trying to minimize her actions in it, but she was in it just as much as the two hitmen. She gives up the hitmen because it was her car. They had to go back to the apartment. They had to go back to the building in February and shut the heat off to get the super's bones and, and, and skull out of, the, out of the furnace. So that's a story from one of my books. It's just, like I said, it, there's a lot of wild stuff that went on in the 80s and 90s when I was an NYPD cop. So how much of it is, uh, is fictional, shall we say, and how much of it is, is actual concrete facts, shall we say? My book? Your books, yeah, uh, in general. Um, my, my books are all real. I changed the names the dates, the locations, ranks. I, I, the one thing I said when I was going to start writing these series of police books was I don't want to get anybody divorced and I don't want to get anybody in trouble or embarrassed. So I changed things. 
I change things around in the stories, but they're all built on something like this happened. Like I said, this, this particular one happened to my old partner and his friend, but I changed things around, but it's not like I just conjure something out of thin air that never happened. These things happen, but I just changed the names, dates, and location. Yeah, so I want to thank you so much. We have a, a lot more to talk about. Uh, and this was great, Vic. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. So, and thank you for watching. Bye-bye, I guess. <laughs>